Good evening. Thanks everyone so much for joining us tonight. I'm Alan Carey, Director of Sphere Education and Initiatives. Thrilled to have you all here with us as part of our conversation tonight for the session Recovery, Exploring Options for Healthcare Reform. Uh, this is our first webinar of 2024. We're very excited to bring together educators from across the country to dig in what is a continuing and important conversation. That is, how do we think about healthcare, health policy, and some of the important ways to engage these challenging conversations from a variety of ideological viewpoints. For those of you who have been to one of our Sphere Summits before, the format for the first part of this evening is going to be familiar to you. For those that haven't, uh, you're in for a great surprise. I won't ruin too much of what we're going to walk through other than to say that we'll be using a model of what's known as the ideological Turing test. More explanations for that to come. As usual, please do jump into the conversation as you will. The chat is open. We'll be pulling questions from that throughout the course of the evening to engage our speakers. Also, if you would, please make sure that in the name that you're listed in, it does show your actual name uh, and not a, a pseudonym. That'll help us be able to be sure to get you your professional development certificate after the event and know who we can send copies of Michael Cannon's book to. So thank you again for joining us. Really excited about it. Without further ado, I wanted to go ahead and introduce our speakers for tonight's conversation. Joining us from the Cato Institute is Michael Cannon. He's our Director of Health Policy Studies. He's been described as an influential healthcare wonk by the Washington Post, Obamacare's single most relentless antagonist by the New Republic, Obamacare's fiercest critic by the week and the intellectual father of King versus Burwell by Modern Healthcare, as well as the most famous libertarian healthcare scholar by Washington Examiner. Now, I'm not clear whether or not he's the only, but he's definitely the most famous, according to them. Uh, Washingtonian Magazine is also named canon of Washington's most influential people in 2021, 2022, and 2023. So excited to have you here, Michael. Uh, joining Michael tonight is Len Nichols. He's the non-resident senior fellow at the Urban Institute, Professor Emeritus at George Mason University, and president of NS Ideas, LLC, a health policy consulting firm. In all three capacities, he continues to expand his recent work on incentivizing investments and social determinants of health. Len's career spanned academia, places like Wellesley College and George Mason University, public policy research institutions like Urban, Mathematica, and New America Foundation, and government, including the Office of Management and Budget, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and the Federal Trade Commission, with a consistent focus on using economic analysis to improve the balance between equity and efficiency in public policies, especially in health insurance, healthcare, and social service markets. Len, Michael, thank you both so much for joining us this evening. Really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, what I'm going to do is turn the, the first part of the conversation over to Michael, who is going to share his point of view of how Lenin would describe the appropriate way to think about health policy reform. Uh, Michael, if you wanted to give a little bit of context about the uh, the approach that we're using tonight, I'm sure the, the audience would greatly appreciate it. Otherwise, uh, please take the stage. I, I was being very effusive to all of you. So... Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Alan. Thank all of you for uh, for joining us this evening. Uh, I want I to, before I pivot to the Turing test, I want to praise Alan for the the fantastic initiative that he has put together. I think this is, I think Sphere has been so important and so valuable, not just to the people who participated in it, but to us at the Cato Institute as well. Uh, and and the 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 mission of, of modeling civil discourse, I think is more important now than it has been at any other period in my lifetime. 
And that's one of the reasons why I, I'm happy and excited to be uh, engaging with Lynn in what we call this ideological Turing test. Now, the idea here is that you've heard lots of panels with people where they give you their perspective and then someone argues with them and they talk past each other and sometimes it gets nasty. What we're doing here is a little different. With this, with this ideological Turing test, what happens is instead of Michael providing his perspective, Lynn providing his, and then we argue, we try to see the world through each other's eyes. We, I'm going to provide my best understanding of what's of what Lens take on health reform is and how he thinks we can improve the U.S. health sector, and then he's going to do the same for me. He's going to try to present my views as best he can. And the the idea here is that if uh, I really understand. Uh, Len's perspective, then I will be able to convey it to him in a way that he says, yeah, that's right. You got it. Because you don't really understand another person's perspective unless you can convince them that you are, you know, that, 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 uh, that you get it in that way. And I think this is also a really good tool to use in this fear initiative and sphere events. In fact, I think every sphere event I've ever done, we've done this Turing test. Because it's also a really good way to show people how to have a civil exchange about really contentious views, uh, because it really does require you to walk a mile in someone else's shoes or someone else's preferences, uh, values, if you will. So I'm going to hope that I do well here uh, representing Len's views to you. Uh, he's going to follow me by, uh, by uh uh, giving his account of my views on health reform, and then we're going to have a chance to critique each other. Uh, so without any further uh, ado, I'm going to jump into my understanding of Len's views of healthcare. Now, remember, I agree with some of this, but not all. So before anyone goes recording and clipping things and putting them out on Twitter or something, this is these are not necessarily my views I'm giving you. But I think Len would say that when it comes to healthcare, the market can do a lot of things really well. The market will not, however, provide healthcare to everyone. There's other things that it won't do so well also. It'll leave a lot of people behind in these ways. So government has to play a robust role in healthcare. Otherwise, a lot of very poor and very sick people are going to suffer and they're going to die needlessly when we could have helped them. But government even though it does need to play a role in healthcare, it can also fail in a lot of ways that hurt people. And so we have to be conscious of those uh, uh, very real and potential failures. And I think there are about three or four broad areas where uh, Lynn would say the government needs to get involved in healthcare. First, if you want to have a health sector, if you want to provide medical care to people, there has to be something called that we call medicine. We need to have people developing new and better treatments and cures and a totally free market can't provide the incentives necessary to generate what economists call the socially optimal level of investment and research and development. And so government needs to do something like a patent system uh, to bring innovation to that socially optimal level. At the same time, patent systems or other approaches are vulnerable to abuses that themselves can place medical care out of reach of many people. So we also need to monitor and combat those abuses when they arise. Second category is, or the second way government needs to play a role in healthcare is that healthcare is so high stakes and so complex that it is just too easy and likely and inevitable 
that uh, producers, some producers are going to take advantage of patients. Drug companies and doctors will sell patients things that are unnecessary or don't work or that will even harm the patient uh, or providers. Uh, they'll be careless sometimes in ways that harm patients. So we need government to police those abuses with a medical malpractice system so that uh, you can take a, a healthcare provider or a drug manufacturer to court if they hurt you. Uh, and we need regulation to ensure that doctors and medical treatments and insurance companies meet certain minimum standards. Uh, the third area is that we need some form of universal health insurance coverage. Since a lot of medical care is extremely expensive, beyond the means of a significant share of the population, and a market will not provide health insurance to everyone, we need some form of government guarantee that everyone will have access to care. Could be a totally government-run system like they have in the United Kingdom or Canada. Could be a public-private system like some countries have. It could be a totally private system like the Affordable Care Act or what Switzerland has. There's no magic bullet uh, among these approaches. They're all subject to trade-offs and they all fail in some ways. So we need to be aware of the pluses and minuses of each approach and vigilant to avoid the harms that each can impose. <clears throat> but what you want to do in each case is you want to design a system of universal coverage that harnesses the self-interest of individuals to serve the public interest. Like, Patient like patents use the self in, self interest to solve the public goods problem inherent to medical innovation, or using financial incentives for people to participate in the universal system of universal coverage and for insurers to provide quality coverage. And finally, in some cases, I think Len would not want to bring more healthcare to people. He, in some cases, I think Len would want people to get less healthcare. A lot of the medical care that people receive has zero value. Sometimes, even when medical care has value, it's the value is much less than the cost of that care. And so patients and society would be better off spending those resources on something else, including some of what we call the social determinants of health, like education and nutrition and housing and that sort of thing. Striking that balance is very difficult. It requires a lot of research that again, markets by themselves will not provide. And so there's a role for government there as well. And that is what I would call the broad outlines of Len's approach to reforming healthcare. I hope he will let me know. I hope he will tell me that I got everything absolutely right and that he can't possibly improve on it. Uh, but uh, before we get to that, I'm eager to hear Len's account of my approach to healthcare reform. Well, that's a hard act to follow. I will certainly say that, but I appreciate the opportunity and I, I definitely appreciate um, Michael's uh, 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 being very careful. And I think he, he he said a lot of things exactly right. So, and I'll come back and emphasize them as we go along. Okay, so now I'm gonna tell you what I think Michael says in this, uh, Michael believes in this, in this Turing experiment. And I think you have to start with philosophy, it seems to me the most important concept in the modern world, which you could argue starts with Plato and Socrates, but it was refined most precisely by John Stuart Mill. The most important concept is that of liberty, the freedom to make your own decisions without asking permission from a king, a lord, or government. In market activities, liberty is really consistent 
with the freedom to make mutually beneficial exchanges with others on a voluntary basis. And, and Michael certainly articulates, and, and in many ways I agree with parts of this, many of the overarching problems that plague our US healthcare system, that is higher than necessary costs for all, inadequate access to high quality care for many, those problems could be improved or eliminated if there was more liberty, more freedom to make mutually beneficial agree arrangements. And though often active in the name of doing good, the strongest force preventing these mutually beneficial cost-lowering and access-enhancing arrangements among individuals and organizations, the force that stops it often is government. Now, government is necessary to make modern societies work. It must define and enforce property rights. It must arrange for the common defense against invasion to unalterably public goods that would be grossly undersupplied due to the free rider problem. But when it moves beyond enforcing property rights and national defense, government inevitably reduces liberty too much, which often lead to higher prices and less care, especially for the lower income population. Now let's take some concrete examples. And I took all these from Michael's book, uh, but I'm gonna give you a couple of personal stories which show you uh, how they're, they're, they go beyond Michael's book. So first, let's start with scope of practice restrictions. Non-physicians and non-dentists, nurse practitioners, dental assistants, et cetera, have been restricted in order to protect physician and dentist incomes. I mean, there, I don't think there's any debate about that uh, in the economics profession. And let me tell you a, a little story from, from my personal life. My son was born in Boston at the Brigham, Harvard Teaching Hospital, fantastic set of human beings floating around. And my wife had really long labor. I mean, like 20 hours. And so if you know it, if you've been through that or you know about it, you know that, you know, what kind of painkiller you get is extremely important. And she got an epidural, which is a, an injection into your lower spine, which basically deadens the parts that need to be deadened so you can stay conscious and really uh, participate and help in the birth, but uh, have some of the pain uh, significantly reduced. Well, that epidural has to be what they call topped off every few hours. And because her labor went on so long, she had to have it topped off three or four or five times. Well, it turns out at the time my son was born in 1987, there was uh, a shortage of anesthesiologists, or at least the Brigham thought so. And so it was really hard to get them to come in a timely fashion. And some of the nurses knew to call anesthesiology way ahead of time, and some of them didn't. And so what happened was, of course, you had to wait for the anesthesiologist to come in order to give the wife the pain reliever, which she needed. And I'm sitting there saying, my God, have mercy, why can't the nurse do this? Because the dosage is written on the wall, the needles already enter, all you gotta do is take the stuff and squirt it in the tube and then it comes in. The nurse does this for a living in 10,000 different ways, but she was not allowed to do the epidural top off, only the anesthesiologist could do that. And Michael, this is why I became a health economist. I saw this as a restraint of trade. This is unbelievably inefficient. And my wife's hurting because of this. So when we restrict the scope of practice, we really do end up raising prices, causing pain. And, and I watched it up close and personal. To take it to a little bit larger degree, state restrictions on practice by those licensed in other states. Same kind of thing, restrictions on telehealth, preventing people from competing. Those kinds of laws 
most of which don't make a lot of sense because after all, every state wants their physicians to be good. It turns out, of course, the quality of, of physicians and the quality of health professionals is actually determined by private bodies, board certifications and associations, et cetera, not the state. The state has licenses and you can argue the licenses themselves can have bad effects, but the, but the restrictions on those who are licensed across state lines or between different modalities of delivery of services are really simply uh, preventing competition and preventing prices from coming down. The final example of this sort of class is a thing called certificate of need, which is used basically to say you cannot have, let's just say, a new MRI machine in a given area if there are other MRIs that are already there. Well, guess what? The people who already have one, the hospitals that have one, don't want a new one to come in and compete with them. They don't want a standalone kind of situation to come in and, and offer lower prices. Well, those certificate of need laws end up protecting incumbents from price competition. Well, those are all just examples of how government, uh, maybe in, in with good intentions, ends up significantly restricting uh, supply, raising prices, and reducing uh, the quality of care and reducing the access to care across the board. You could argue the same thing about the way the FDA approval process works for new drugs. There, there, it is unambiguously true they restrict drugs they think might be harmful, but in doing so, and the procedures are such that it ends up probably delaying drugs that would be very helpful. That's a natural trade-off. It's not simple to get right, but a number of folks believe, and Michael's certainly one of them, that um, the balance we have struck is, is really in the wrong place. We're not allowing new enough new drugs to come to market quick enough, and we're preventing a lot of, of good that could be done more so than we're protecting harm that is that is hypothetical. So um, the FDA restriction is another one. But the thing I want to spend the most time on, because I think it's the most controversial, and in many ways, the salient issue at, at, at in, in debate about the Affordable Care Act is insurance regulation. And I think it's fair to say that um, the insurance reforms, so the insurance regulations that are in, in put in, in the Affordable Care Act, were kind of like the epitome of 20 years of arguing about insurance market regulation that have been going on. And Michael's been fighting all of them from the beginning. <laughs> so let me walk through a couple of the most important ones. Guaranteed issue. Guaranteed issue is a thing that says you have to sell to whoever wants the policy. And that became something that's a, a flashpoint, a, a major point of contention, because Insurers may not want to sell to everybody. Insurers may be quite worried about selling to some people who are already known to be sick or bad risk, or they may want to charge those people a much higher price because of their risk. That uh, assignment of a higher premium or a higher price is what's called underwriting, and indeed in the limit, uh, refusal to sell, which insurers were free to do before the Affordable Care Act. Refusal to sell is the infinite price, right? But it's, so it's all it's all related. Guaranteed issue said you can't do that. And then the problem was, well, what, what are they charged? Well, modified community rating came in. Community rating is essentially charged. You got to charge everybody the same. Modified community rating allows variation by age or uh, in the Affordable Care Act case, you could always do this uh, by smoking status. If you smoke, you, you, you were believed to be, should pay more. But the point is the, the modified community rating had the effect of allowing the relatively sick people to buy, pre, buy insurance at relatively lower prices than they would have been able to otherwise. 
guaranteed issue meant they had to be, uh, you couldn't turn them away. And both those things made it possible then to uh, basically extend private insurance uh, to everyone if you subsidize people to, to pay uh, the, the low income population. So that was a way in an interesting sort of regulatory way to get more people covered with decent coverage that they could afford. But Michael is correct. All of those elements, guaranteed issue, modified community rating, benefit requirements, all those things raise the premiums for the healthy. And let me just say, I grew up in rural Arkansas, if you can't already tell. And, and one of my good buddies from high school was a fantastic uh, track star, Randy Harrison. And, and Randy was a farmer his whole life. And when the Affordable Care Act passed, he knew that I had been advocating for it. He sent me, he blamed me personally for what happened to his premiums. His premiums went way up. And it went way up because Randy had been buying a policy that was not guaranteed issue, not community rating, did not have the benefit requirements of the ACA. But from his point of view, it was exactly what he wanted and thus the Affordable Care Act prevented him from making a mutually beneficial trade, which he and his insurance company wanted to do. And he held me personally responsible for that. So that is an example of, of uh, uh, Randy Harrison was certainly hurt by the laws that came into being. So uh, I think I can probably stop and, and you get the gist here. Uh, you need to be careful. Uh, Michael would be extremely careful to explain that you don't want government to do things that restrict mutually beneficial welfare enhancing arrangements. And often in many cases it does. So I'll stop there and, and we'll go from there. Len, thank you so much. And Michael as well. Fantastic conversation so far. Really enjoyed it. As you guys can probably tell, both Len and Michael are fiercely passionate advocates for their position. But what I think was particularly beautiful about this approach is their ability to be thoughtful and engage the ideas of the other individual in a way that was uh, grounded in appreciating their perspective while being able at the same time offer that sort of personal distance from it and engaging in it. Uh, Michael, you went first. Let's go ahead and have you offer some quick thoughts or quick rebuttals. How did Len do when it came to explaining your position? Where where do you agree with what he said? Where may you have some uh, qualifications? Can you unmute again? I thought it was so great, Len. I feel like there's no daylight between us. <laughs> um, I've never started with Plato before. Uh, maybe I should work that into my stump speech. Um, uh, but uh, but I thought it was. I, I I thought everything was great. I would just. Um, there's maybe only maybe one or two things that I would add, and that is that, uh, one of the reasons why I want government to play no special role in the health sector of the economy. So, you know, no tax preferences, no licensing of clinicians, no Medicare, no Medicaid is because I, I'm of the view that in a system like that, it wouldn't be perfect. You would still have people falling through the cracks because they couldn't afford medical care or they did and they didn't buy insurance where they should have. You would still have people falling through the cracks. My my only claim is that the sort of innovations that you would see in that system that drove down prices from the level we see right now and that improved the quality of medical care and health insurance would be so dramatic and so different from what we see right now. Those innovations would fill in so many of the cracks in our healthcare sector that we would see fewer people falling through than we do now or under any other alternative system that you could design. And if that seems uh, 
if that seems, you know, to a lot of people, that'll seem wild because healthcare is so expensive and, and, and programs like Medicare are, are so necessary. Uh, one of the reasons I hold that view is because uh, of my conviction, my belief after uh, studying this for so many years, that the reason prices are so expensive and the reason people feel like they need Medicare is government itself. I could, I could take us all the way back to 1913 and the creation of the income tax and the creation of a weird tax distortion that favors employer-sponsored health insurance. And that can explain a lot of the growth in healthcare prices that we've seen, as well as tens of millions of people losing their coverage and being going uninsured once they retire, which, create, which created the perception that markets had failed uh, the elderly and uh, created uh, the perception that we needed a program like Medicare to care for them. So that's, those are the only things I think that I would add. Otherwise, uh, I think, uh, Len, that was great. Thank you. Len, how did, uh, how did Michael do? He did great, too. I, I was very impressed. And and what I was most impressed with was the statement is that, that you know, what I believe is you should channel self-interest to serve the social interest. That's what good policy does. And I, I think, Michael, you nailed it. I, I think that's exactly right. The thing I would add, and again, I think you got it all right, what I would add, maybe emphasize, is just the notion of balance. <clears throat> Look, liberty is important, but equity is important too. And so what I want is somehow to, to kind of work both in. I mean, I, I live in New Orleans, so let me tell you, if you don't know, about the colors of New Orleans Mardi Gras. Purple, green, and gold, okay? How many of you know what all these colors stand for? This is, this is, this is not Plato, but it's been around a couple hundred years, okay? Green is for faith. Purple is for justice. Gold is for power. Faith, justice, power. Now, faith doesn't necessarily mean a particular theology. It means a belief in something bigger than yourself. And I would argue, and so would the people who make the gumbo down here, that you can't maintain any one of those three things unless you have all three. If you don't have justice, you will not sustain power. If you don't have faith, you don't really know what to organize your justice for. If you don't have power, you can't do good. So you've got to have all three. And that's really where I think the balance needs to be struck. And Lord knows Affordable Care Act is not perfect. Michael, you may know I spent an hour and a half with Mary Landrieu, the senator from Louisiana, the day before the vote. We went through the whole bill, section by section. She had come to trust me over the years for various things. We gave it a C plus, okay, together. We agree, C plus. And so she says, should I vote against this thing and we'll start over? I said, no, ma'am, because then that will be the second president who failed. It will never do it again. The Republicans have abandoned where they were 20 years ago. You'll have 300,000 Louisianans who will never get coverage. Pass it now and improve it. And that's really the way I think about the world. So let me stop. Well, gentlemen, thank you uh, for that. And uh, just as a, a brief note to the teachers joining us tonight, one of, these, one of the things that we particularly love about this is that it can be a really powerful model for how to help your students engage in challenging conversations, put them in the position that they need to be thinking about representing and articulating a different point of view than the one that they happen to bring to the table and use that as one that helps empower that measure of empathy, but also grounds them in a proper understanding of how other people approach similar and challenging conversations. Len, Michael, the, the question that I want to ask you next is a little to do with 
less uh, where you get each other right, but more where the sort of rub is and the disagreement between how the two of you think about uh, healthcare policy and healthcare reform in particular. If you had to articulate in your own words where you would say your sort of most significant disagreement with the other, what that might look like. Uh, Len, let's start with you. What would you say is sort of your most significant disagreement with Michael when it comes to thinking about healthcare and healthcare reform in particular? So I would say when Michael emphasizes what markets can do well, he's more optimistic than I am about the ability to tame market power, the ability to charge higher than than competitive prices. You know, I, you, you, I'm sure you know, something like 70% of hospitals are actually monopolist where they are. They don't have competition. A lot of physician groups have figured out if they band together, they become the orthopedics group or the ED group. And so they raise prices. Guess what? All this venture capital money out there buying physician practices, it's all about exploiting existing market power. Now, you could argue, and, and I would probably support you, we should have better antitrust or something. We should have different ways, of, but we don't. <laughs> and, and antitrust is a very slow and imperfect animal to deal with these market power imbalances, which can have significant. So I would just say the inability to rein in some people's ability to charge higher than super super normal prices, super competitive prices. That's the place I think where I differ the most with Michael. If we if we didn't have that, if we could solve that problem, then he and I would agree on probably eighty percent of the world. Whereas now we probably agree on sixty. I mean, I I would say that fifty. Michael, you know. same question for you. So uh, if I had to ask, answer, where do we disagree the most? I think it's on, on the, our conception of equality and equity. See, I think that to have an egalitarian society, you have to have maximum liberty. Because if not, what, what you're talking about when you're talking about government uh, uh, playing a more active role in the, in the health sector than in other sectors uh, of the economy, you're, you're talking about empowering some group of people in a distant capital to make your health decisions for you. And there's something fundamentally inegalitarian about that. I mean, there's lots of ways that we might be unequal. And like Jeff Bezos and I are very unequal in a number of ways. He's richer and better looking. Uh, he could buy and sell me several times over. But but he doesn't have the sort of power over me that your garden variety bureaucrat has or that legislators or the police have to be able to compel me to do things that I don't want to do. And when the government says, if you buy health insurance that stays with you from job to job, we're going to penalize you by making you pay higher taxes and put you in jail if you don't pay those higher taxes. Or the government says, you're, we're not going to let you see a dental therapist or a nurse practitioner who practices independently because uh, if, if you do those things, then we're going to put uh, her in jail and maybe you. Those are you are creating inequalities that are not only unequal but inequitable, and in that you're giving people power to over to use to use the government's power to coerce to overcome the will of others. So I think that that my understanding of both equality and equity encompasses those forms of equality, and I I get the sense that Len worries less about those, maybe because he trusts democratic constraints more than I do. Um, but you know, we also disagree when it comes to uh, empirical questions like why is that market power that concerns Lens so much there, and and what props it up. 
uh, and I'm glad that he mentioned market power because this allows me to uh, to plug the book again. In in my book recovery, there's a graph that appears a few times. I was so excited by this graph, I made sure, and the editors were like, "Why are you repeating this graph? Because it's that important." What it shows is it shows prices for a number of health services falling. You know, a number of uh, a bunch of experiments uh, showed that a certain intervention could cause the prices of various health services, uh, medical services to fall. Some of those were hip and knee replacements. So pretty invasive stuff. And in California, there were hospitals that were charging $12,000 for hip and knee replacements and others that were charging $60,000. And these were the hospitals that Len is talking about, the ones with the market power, you know, the ones that the venture capitalists uh, uh, bought up and consolidated. And the state of California, the insurance companies that provided coverage to their workers couldn't get those prices down for the life of them because anytime they tried, the only tool they have at their disposal is to exclude those hospitals from their networks. And when they do that, the employees said, what are you doing? That's the only hospital within 30 miles of my house. And, and they would rebel. And so the insurance companies, their hands were tied. But what the state uh, uh, and the insurance companies did was they conducted some experiments and so did Safeway with other uh, with other services. They gave people less insurance. They made them more price conscious through ways that I could describe. And once those consumers were price conscious, some things that aren't supposed to happen in healthcare markets happened. The consumers began demanding price information. They got price information because the producers had to provide it for, to the world so the patients were going to go someplace else. And if the patients didn't like the price information they were getting, they changed their behavior a lot of them shifted from the high price hospitals to the low price hospitals enough that providers changed their behavior by dropping prices. They dropped prices at the high price hospitals for hip and knee replacements by 37% over two years. When do you ever see uh, prices falling like this? But, but the reason this is relevant to the point that Lynn was making is that what was propping up those, those prices and giving those hospitals that market power is the fact that the government is is compelling people to over-insure so they're less price sensitive so the hospitals can get away with this sort of thing. And if you if what you want to do is to break those hospitals' market power, you need to make the you let the consumer control the money so that they are price sensitive and they will break the hospital's market power. Meanwhile, government, when they get involved, they just make this problem worse. It was insulating people from the prices of their services by encouraging excessive insurance that gave them uh, a lot of these hospitals, their power in, in those markets. Uh, elsewhere, we see the Medicare program as a result of this, uh, what the wonks call site of service differentials problem, where Medicare will pay uh, a doctor's office $1,000 to do a cataract removal, but pay a hospital $2,000 to provide the exact same service. What ends up happening because Medicare is such a terrible price setter and price negotiator is, it creates an incentive for the hospitals to buy up the physician practices so that the same patient can go into the same physician's office. But this time, instead of paying $1,000, Medicare will pay $2,000 and the physicians in the hospitals get to split that extra money. Here you've got government driving consolidation in the health sector. So so we agree on, on uh, that the market power is a problem in healthcare, but I see government as creating that problem and perpetuating it rather than seeing government as a solution to that problem. 
Len, I'd love to give you a chance to respond. Michael shared a lot of thoughts on uh, markets as a solution to market problems and government's intervention there. Uh, how would you respond? What are some things that you think like that that makes sense? I agree with this. Where are some of those areas where yeah, you might push so, back so and say not sure, so much? For sure, the knee replacement type examples in California were are great. And I agree with Michael completely. What happened there was transparency in prices. And let's be clear, the procedures are sufficiently standardized that lots of different people can do a knee just as well as somebody else. So UCSF and Stanford, they didn't have qualities of superiority in, in something. And these are, at the end of the day, elective, optional, you can think about it, you can shop around. A whole lot of healthcare is when you're naked and asleep because, I mean, so, so you don't have the same kind of, of if you will, cognitive uh, awareness to make these kinds of choices. So I would just say where it's feasible, God bless Michael, let markets work. And, and we should absolutely encourage those kinds of arrangements. And if I remember correctly, it really was the insurers who did the uh, transparency uh, push, uh, right? More than anybody else, because they, they believe that knee replacements could be more commoditized and, and less specialized. But that's not going to be true for all of it. So I would just say, again, remember my, my purple, green, gold gumbo. You've got to have a balance here. For some things, let the market go. Uh, cataract surgeries and, 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 and those laser surgeries, let, let the market go. Other things, maybe not. And that's where you've got to have some kind of uh, what I will call backup plan for where the market information is insufficient. You know, healthcare is replete with asymmetric information. And in general, asymmetric information uh, causes issues in, in market efficiency. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to have government be the only supplier of information. As I said before, board certification matters way more than licensure. Because if you're board certified as a surgeon, you're a very different animal than me, right? I mean, you, okay, so that's it. And, and board certification is completely by the professional authorities. It has nothing to do with government. All right, so that that's, can be done, if you will, by the private sector. But you got to be really careful about procedures that are opaque and they happen, I mean, um, like I said, when you're naked and asleep and, and that kind of stuff, you've got to have, I would argue, a third party paying attention to make sure. Does, does Medicare bargain well? No. And why doesn't Medicare bargain well? Because Congress won't let it. I mean, at some level... The problem is we basically have the board of directors of a health insurance plan getting campaign finance contributions from the people who are selling the stuff. Now, you know, Uwe Reinhardt used to make jokes and Michael, remember that this might be the dumbest possible way you could organize this. You don't want. And that's why I'll just say but one last plug for the Affordable Care Act, as it was written, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which was created to give some teeth to the ability of the Medicare program in particular, but the healthcare system in general, to control costs over time. And that little provision said that if Medicare costs grow faster than X, I forget what X was, doesn't really matter, it was gonna happen. If they grow faster than X, then this independent payment advisory board, which we all thought would be a bunch of old gray bearded health economists, would get to propose a solution and Congress would have 60 days to come up with one that would be actuarially equivalent and that could replace it. But if Congress didn't do it in 60 days, then our provision would go into effect. 
Oh my God, we were salivating over this. We thought that's the only way we're going to get from here to there because that would break the back of all the market power. Well, guess what? That thing was repealed on a bipartisan basis. Why? Because both Democrats and Republicans get money from the hospital associations who are terrified of this sort of thing. So yeah, we could do a heck of a lot better job managing the prices, but it requires, I would argue, Michael, liberty on the part of people who actually know how to negotiate these things as opposed to what Medicare lets CMS do because, I mean, what, what Congress lets CMS do because of campaign finance. In my view, if you want to fix healthcare reform, you got to fix campaign finance. I have that over my heart teed up. I almost shared my screen with that, but that very quote from Uva that I just happened to have in, in a PowerPoint slide where very famous health economist said, yeah, uh, the United States is too corrupt for single payer because as Len said, uh, uh, the board of directors, Congress takes payments from the vendors, healthcare providers. Uh, and so they don't run an efficient program. They just keep the gravy train going for health healthcare providers that the Medicare program uh, unjustly enriches. And um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot more I could say about what Len said. I think the answer is uh, more freedom, less government. But I really want to hear the questions from the from yeah. from the audience. I really Absolutely. want to make sure lots we have of, time for those. Lots of great ones coming in so far. And for those of you who have them, please throw some additional ones in the chat. Uh, one of the first ones I wanted to tackle, though, is a question about the role that government plays, whether that's Congress or whether that's one of these advisory bodies, in terms of creating transparency where it doesn't otherwise exist. Often that question comes up in the, the framework of price transparency, but just transparency more broadly. And I think as a consumer, we've all been in that position where it's frustrating, where you engage and you just have no idea what's going on. So uh, what role is there uh, for that to happen and what might be some of the obstacles that are in the way? So it's fascinating, you know, it's a great question. Let me be clear, it's, it's a great question. It's fascinating, there have been numerous attempts to bring about transparency in healthcare. California had a law 30 years ago. You had to show uh, what, you're, what you're charging. And what, what the hospitals did was put out what they call the charge master, which is every single procedure. There are, by the way, 3,000 of them. Every single procedure, no, there are 10,000 of them. Every single procedure and what the price was. But it was the charge, not the price you actually pay depending on what your insurance arrangement is. So the problem is it's really hard to get down to what the prices you put, you face at the point of service, unless you've got your insurance contract and all this configured. And, and the thing is, here's, here's the real problem. Most clinicians don't know the prices of what they're doing. They are not relevant to their lives. They have somebody else who gets them paid. They working on the heart. And they're working on the knee. They're working on the on the head. They're doing what they're doing. And somebody else gets them paid. So they couldn't tell you what the relative cost of different things were if you wanted them to. Now, think about that. <laughs> How many vendors in other markets don't know what the prices are? So part of it is they're not sort of, I would say, institutionalized to help consumers think about what's the smartest thing. The system is incredibly complex asymmetric information, it's impossible to understand those 10,000 CPT codes. And so you've really got to have an agent. And that's really what, in my view, private insurance is for. Private insurance should be out there negotiating with the health plans, banging up against the wall, saying, no, we won't pay for this. We're going to take our, our need people over here and 
hit people over there. You've got to have an agent to pull this off. And the trick is you got to have an agent you trust. And you might have read this memo. A lot of people don't trust health insurance because they have this history of denying care. I would argue, and I'll just say that out loud, the Affordable Care Act, when you once you have guaranteed issue, once you have community rating, it's suddenly in the insurer's interest to be a better agent because they're on the hook for what this is going to cost now, and they can't turn people away anymore. And so they have to become better agents. And I think you've seen trusted insurers go up. The Medicare Advantage program has way better trust among seniors than any other sector in our in our in our country because the seniors see what they do for them. I, I mean, I'm one. I I see it big time every time I go to Ostner, yada yada yada. So I just think you got to have an agent. The agent's got to be somebody who's informed and and has incentives similar to you. And I would argue the Affordable Care Act incentives uh, make the agent more credible. Uh, on price transparency, uh, price transparency is not a problem for the people who control the money. Those people always get the price information that they want, because if they don't, the producers don't get paid. So the the government knows controls half of the money in our health sector. It knows what the prices are because it sets them. So. Um, and the insurance companies that negotiate the contracts with the providers, they know what the prices are also. The reason they're the ones negotiating the contracts, they're the ones writing the checks. The reason consumers don't know what the prices are and the reason the system doesn't orient itself to provide consumers that information is because the consumers don't control the money. Uh, in the United States, according to the OECD, Consumers control only about seven, one sixth of health spending in the United States. The other five sixths is compulsory spending that the government controls either directly or by compelling you to let your employer control that spending. And if you don't control that money, then the system is not going to respond to you. It doesn't matter what economic system you're talking about, communism, free markets, it's always going to respond to the people who control the money. So if you want price transparency, what you got to do is you got to let the consumers control the $4 trillion that uh, goes to healthcare in this country every year. And when you do that, what you see is in those experiments that I mentioned with hip and knee replacements and other things, price information just happens. I mean, it just makes its way to consumers. It, it, the producers have to provide it. If you have the government try to mandate it, it's just going to be a huge waste of time. Right. We're seeing that in healthcare right now as the hospitals are gaming it and trying not to provide anything that's, you know, too informative. But think about every hospital room, hospital room, uh, every hotel room you've ever been in. And on the back of the door, it has the room rates. Do you ever check those? I never check. Uh, I mean, I check those because I'm, I'm an economist and a weirdo. Uh, but I check those and they have no bearing at all, no relation at all to the prices that I've ever paid for one of these rooms. But the law mandates that they post room rates. And like Len said, they just post what they call the list price or the charge master. And it's it's meaningless. So these sorts of government mandates are not going to give us the price transparency that we want. Letting consumers control the money is how to do that. And Len and I also disagree a lot when it comes to whether insurance companies are better agents for consumers in a world of Obamacare and Medicare Advantage than they were uh, before that or would be otherwise. But maybe someone else will ask about that. So speaking of the Affordable Care Act, we got a couple of great questions and the deal with the different components of it. Each of you mentioned in one way or the other uh, 
in both the inception and then the subsequent inaction of the Affordable Care Act and changes that happened along the way, elements of it that you thought were less than ideal or as they've been changed along the way, haven't been as effective or maybe could be even better than we've taken a look at. So thinking about the Affordable Care Act and thinking about what might be possible next, uh, and Michael, I'm going to set aside scrapping the entirety of the Affordable Care Act as a, an answer to this question for you. What What is one way that you might argue that could be improved? What would be one way that the current system could be meaningfully better if this kind of change were enacted by Congress? Len, I'm going to let you go first Why Michael thinks of something that isn't scrapping the whole yeah. thing. So I think the Affordable Care Act did a decent job expanding coverage. I think it did a decent job of sharing the cost of that. It basically took some of it from hospitals through the Medicare program price cuts, and it took some of them from higher income people who, in my view, could afford to pay half a percent more. But um, what it didn't do a real good job at was setting in motion a set of structural attempts to deal with the inexorable cost rise. Now I will say, and I can show you a slide if you wanna see it, we spent 17.2% of GDP in 2010. We spent 17.3% of GDP on healthcare in 2022. So I'll tell you, within economics right now, a conundrum that hasn't been answered is why didn't costs grow more, right? But because we we covered 25 million more people and and we didn't want to take more GDP. So so there, we did something right. But I would say all of us are holding our breath because we have not significantly reduced, I would argue, the market power of the and in fact, market power is growing in, in various ways. Nor have we seriously addressed some of the imbalances of, of quality that Michael's talking about and that, that he's rightly and I share with him the concern about. So I think we need more teeth in the cost containment sections of the Affordable Care Act. And I would start, of course, you heard me already, bringing back the Independent Payment Advisory Board, bringing back some kind of mechanism that enforces a discipline. Look, the reason that, uh, you, look, I, I, I was able to go around the country and talk to a whole bunch of hospital people while the law was being implemented in 2010, 2011, 2012. They take you to dinner before you give the keynote. And every dinner I would ask them, what's the thing that worries you the most? And they would say, I, I, you know, I'm afraid they're going to cut prices without knowing what they're doing. And I said, so what would you do? He said, give me a date and give me a target and give me, you know, tools. Let me do what I want to do and I will hit your target and, and let me do it my way. You know what that said to me? I mean, I got this all over the country. That said to me, they know how to reduce costs. They've never had to. Okay, and there are a couple of ways you can impose discipline on them, and that's what's got to happen. We have never imposed a discipline because of the campaign finance problem. If we want to solve the cost problem, you've got to impose discipline. And the only way to impose discipline is to change the way you pay them. And you need, unfortunately, experts to get in there and, and, and do that. And there's no other way to do it. You give Congress right of refusal. They don't like it. You can do something else. But you've got to get structure and discipline. And if they know it's coming, by God. You'd be amazed. I'm, I'm with Michael here. You'd be amazed at the innovation that will get us there. But they've got to know you're serious about it. There's got to be real penalties for failing to do it. you got to tie their self-interest to the social interest in cost control. That's what you got to do. Thanks, Len. Michael, 
The reason Congress, as Len describes, is having such a hard time eliminating wasteful healthcare spending and excessive healthcare prices is a problem that economists call uh, regulatory capture. Government assumes a power, whether it's the power to tax and spend or the power to regulate how private actors behave. And the people who in the industry that the Congress is regulating spend the most on lobbying and they capture that, that those government powers and use them to benefit themselves. That's why there's excessive healthcare spending because the hospitals love it and the drug companies love it. And that's why Congress can't get rid of it because they they lobby more than anyone else and the consumers and they get uh, uh, the, the consumers who receive those subsidies to lobby along with them because it doesn't cost them anything. And so, and so we end up in this mess. And the only way, and government is so bad at this, so bad at this, the only way that Obamacare was able to reduce uh, spending in healthcare pro government healthcare programs by a trillion dollars over 10 years, so it's not chump change, was by promising the industry $2 trillion in new spending. That's how bad government is at this. That's how bad the regulatory capture is. That's how Obamacare I just described, described its fiscal impact. I would. I love the cuts in Obamacare. I would want to repeal that part of Obamacare. That was, that was the best part of Obamacare. Uh, the Independent Payment Advisory Board was an unconstitutional super legislature. I love that it would have cut uh, government spending, but it tried to assume Congress powers that the Constitution only grants to Congress. So I didn't shed any tears over Congress repealing it by like 96 to 4 or whatever the vote was in the Senate. Um, but I, I know, well, as for the rest of Obamacare, I know too much about that law. I know about too many ways that 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 those regulations and those subsidies, uh, those price controls are hurting people. I know too many people that those things are hurting to say, I'm not gonna say don't repeal it. Of course, repeal it yesterday. Some people with expensive medical conditions would then be struggling. What that would do is it would reveal the harms that previous government interventions have inflicted on those folks, but that's not an excuse for hurting even more people. So I would want to repeal it and then we'd have to figure out something to do for those people. But the vast majority of the American people would benefit from repealing Obamacare. If we can't do that, if that's not politically feasible right now. I think there's something that states can do to provide relief for that vast majority of people the law is hurting. The Obama administration exempted about five health insurance markets from Obamacare's regulations and subsidies and so forth. Those are health insurance markets in U.S. territories like Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands and so forth. The Obama administration just gave them an exemption, said all those regulations that Len mentioned don't apply there. The most expensive, the costliest, and the most harmful regulations in Obamacare. So every state in the country has the power, as a result of that, to exempt all of its residents and all of its employers from those regulations and the harms they inflict just by saying we're going to recognize the insurance licenses that any U.S. territory issues to an insurance plan. And in those territories, you've got insurers like United Health, you've got Humana, you've got Aetna providing, uh, the, they're already in those markets. They have provider networks in the in the 50 states. Uh, they, they could, states could uh, give their employee, they could design plans for Florida or other states and Florida could give its residents access to much more affordable health insurance that doesn't include the incentives to skimp on care for the sick that Obamacare does. And it does, just like Medicare Advantage does. We could talk about that. 
and therefore provide them more secure health insurance. And it could improve Obamacare's risk pools while also providing a huge boon to struggling U.S. territories who could really use the economic development. So that's one change that I would make. It's not even a federal, you know, federal level repeal Obamacare yesterday. But there are things that states can do to provide relief if Congress is not going to do that. We have just a, a few minutes left in the conversation. The The last topic that I wanted to bring up is something that um, Michael, you hinted at earlier, but I think it would be interesting to pull to the front of the conversation, which is the relationship between the tax status of um, employer provided plans versus and, and the, the challenge of severing employer provided plans as a mechanism for reforming healthcare overall. Uh, so, as Michael, I'm sure you can share with the, the educators here in significantly more detail than I can. Due to a, a tax code provision, most Americans <clears throat> who don't have government-provided health insurance in the United States have insurance that comes from their employer. But why those two things are together, that's a historical oddity, an interesting one. Why did it happen, and what, if any, benefit would exist to doing away with that structure? So, Michael, why don't you share just a little bit about that first, since you brought it up earlier, and then, Len, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Is there is there benefit in moving away from something like employer-provided health insurance plans? That's that's neat. I bet this is an area, another area where Len and I largely agree. So, about 56% of the U.S. population gets their health insurance from an employer. And this is not a result of market forces. This is the result of a weird quirk in the tax code that nobody really intended to happen. But when Congress passed the income tax in 1913, this was before there was anything like modern health insurance. That didn't come on the scene until about 1929. But employers did provide some medical benefits to workers. Sometimes they did hire a doctor and that sort of thing to treat their workers. And so when Congress passed the income tax, the IRS, there's the IRS, the Treasury Department bureaucrats had to decide, okay, how are we, what are we going to do with this form of compensation that employers offer to people, these health benefits? Are we going to treat those as income that's subject to the tax? And for reasons I could go into, they decided, no, we're not going to do that. Congress never weighed in on this. They never gave health benefits a thought, but some uh, Treasury Department bureaucrats came up with that answer. And it stuck. And there's some confusion about it uh, all through World War II, World War I, World War II. And by the time the IRS tried to dial back that decision in the 1950s, uh, Congress, when the, when the IRS did that, Congress said uh, the, the employers who to whom that provision, that tax preference or tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance to whom the exclusion gave a huge benefit in the labor market, they went to the to Congress and said, no, you can't let them get rid of this tax preference for us. And Congress then codified it. So now it is, it's not just some bureaucratic interpretation of the law. It is part of federal statute that if your employer gives you a dollar of uh, cash wages, you have to pay taxes on that. Maybe uh, a, a, it works out to 33 cents of that you lose to taxes. But if your employer gives you that same dollar as health insurance, you pay no taxes on it at all. A key thing to understand here is that dollar that the employer uses to pay for your health benefits, that's part of your compensation. So, so when your employer is putting together your compensation package, and then when you're choosing compensation packages among employers, you're really choosing 
uh, whether you're going to let your employer control a bunch of your money and use it to choose your health insurance plan. And if you don't, if you want to take that, what ends up being $17,000 for a family uh, with employer coverage nowadays, if you want to take that $17,000 as cash, you have to pay taxes on it. You lose a third of that if you want to choose your own health insurance plan. And so a lot of people, this is effectively uh, a mandate to purchase employer-sponsored health insurance, which is a lousy form of health insurance. It is low quality, terrible health insurance because it disappears when you get sick and then can't work anymore, or your employer just decides to drop coverage, or your spouse divorces you, or you turn 18, or you turn 65 and retire, or any of a number of things happen, you lose your health insurance. You're more likely to lose your health insurance that uh, uh, after you get sick and end up uninsured than if you had just bought health insurance directly from an insurance company. And so this, this weird accident fuels this problem of pre-existing conditions that the government has been trying to solve ever since at least Medicare. That's why people thought we needed a government program to provide health insurance for the elderly. It's because for 40 years, the government had been penalizing workers unless they enrolled in a type of health insurance that disappeared on them when they retire. Insurance companies were offering lifelong health insurance plans at that time. But, but you had to pay a penalty if you wanted to buy one of those. So almost no one did. At the same time, for reasons I could get into, this tax preference increases the prices for medical services. So you've got people falling through the cracks because they're losing their health insurance and Congress is fueling the problem of pre-existing conditions. You've got people falling through the cracks because Congress, through this weird tax quirk, is jacking up prices for health care and jacking up prices for health insurance. And then people look around at, at all this deprivation that we see in the U.S. health sector, all these people falling through the cracks, and they say, well, I guess markets have failed. But it's really not markets that have failed at all. It's government that has uh, taken control of the health sector and made an absolute mess of it and made more people fall through the cracks that, than would have if the government had just never gotten involved in the first place. Uh, Len, final thoughts in response to what Michael yeah, so, said? Or just uh, well, I think we're, we're nearly out of time, but I'll, I'll just say, look, I think we agree it would be better if we didn't have a tax exclusion. But in a way, it's only better if you have a place where everybody can go to buy their individual insurance on a fair and, and, and equal basis. And that's where Michael and I completely disagree. You've got to have regulation to make that feasible. Yes, people can get cheaper policies if you can buy them from Puerto Rico, but you're not going to get the same kind of coverage for the sick that you have here. If you were going to get that, Michael, it would have been here in 1960 and 1970, 1980, 1990. All those decades when small employers were screaming for insurance market reforms of the very kind we now have in the Affordable Care Act. So I think you've got to have a place. To me, the big federal exchanges, it would be, it would be better if we had no employer uh, tax break and people took their money to a common set of rules. I will say, you know, where, where maybe Michael and I can agree, there are two definitions of fairness here. One is that no one should ever be in a risk pool with someone else that they don't want in the pool with. And it shouldn't be forced to be pooled with somebody. That's one way of thinking about fairness. Another way of thinking about fairness is no one should be forced to bear the risk of really bad luck. I got cancer. I got an injury, my spinal cord, whatever. And, and those two definitions of fairness are both equally philosophically defensible. 
but only one of them actually works for a world in which you have a lot of unlucky people. So that's why I'm willing to tolerate uh, the loss that is imposed on the healthy to help the sick, because at the end of the day, all of us could be sick at any given moment. And that's why I think it's a good idea to have protection. Len, Michael, thank you both so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciated the candor and thoughtfulness with which you engage in the conversation. And I think the the high level of respect that you showed each other and engaging across differences. So a fantastic model for the educators here tonight. Uh, and thank you all, teachers, for joining us in tonight's conversation. Really greatly appreciate you taking the time. I know it's a busy stretch of the season for you. So thank you so much for coming to the conversation this evening. Uh, look forward for more Sphere webinars and professional development events coming your way soon. And if you have not yet, please do take a look and apply for Sphere Summit this summer. We'd love to have you all join us in person. Again, Len, Michael, thank you all so much. And with that, we'll go ahead and close the conversation for this evening. Take care. Thank you. Thanks.